Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about letting justice roll. Actually, letting justice roll too. Feels like this inappropriate conversation's recording of a new show in the year 2020 is long overdue, and part of the reason for the delay is simply the year 2020. If you're alive during the time that I'm making this recording, I'm quite sure you know what I mean. In January, January 18th, 2015, to be precise, I released a podcast called Letting Justice Roll, Inappropriate Conversations number 157. And most of the time in that podcast was spent looking squarely back on the disappointments I was experiencing at the end of 2014. They were disappointments in the area of proper policing, of law enforcement, uh, grand jury behavior, uh, prosecutor misbehavior, and particularly the treatment of black people at the hands of authorities. This notion that has become the Black Lives Matter movement was prominently in my mind when I recorded that almost two-hour podcast a little more than five years ago. As I recall, it was one of those shows where I realized that there was no way I was going to be able to do a sort of a proper edit, that my uh, anger was high, my thoughts were flying all over the place, and the best bet was to simply hit record, warts and all, put on intro music, outro music, and post it as a podcast. It is probably as close as uh, Inappropriate Conversations has come to being live by that point in time. Now, after January of 2015, there have been live recorded Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth podcasts um, in the context of Pride 48 events in cities like Las Vegas and New Orleans. But in this case, this original episode of Letting Justice Roll, well, that was quite different for me. There was a moment where the phone rang during the recording and I simply hit pause. And then when the phone was done and the answering machine was done recording, I just unpaused and carried on and left the ringing phone in the episode. And I don't know why I'm going on too much more about it, um, because in addition to this episode being available at inappropriateconversations.org, as all past episodes of Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth podcasts are, sharing the RSS feed there, also available at inappropriateconversations.com via a redirect. But I'm also now planning to share this as a talkback episode in the very near future. It was only a, upon deciding that I, the best title for the show I want to record today is Letting Justice Roll Part 2 that I realized that I probably needed to share the five-year-old perspective again, and talkback episodes is how I do that. For anyone new to what I do here as IC underscore Greg inappropriate conversations, Greg, on these podcasts, one of the things is, of course, this show, Inappropriate Conversations, politics, religion, popular culture, including sex, drugs, and rock and roll, bringing these things together, which many people in polite society act as if we ought to keep separated. I'm not about polite society keeping these ideas separated, but I am about holding myself and these different issues accountable. I'm not going to allow religion 
to drop some, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles that sort of nonsense. If the Bible is true about a particular issue, it should be able to stand up to scrutiny, including political scrutiny. But likewise, I'm also not going to be a friend of the religious right in trying to blend politics and religion at the exclusion of all other worldviews. So Inappropriate Conversations does that. Walk the Earth is the other podcast that appears on this feed with new episodes, and Walk the Earth is really all about asking questions. In the case of my family, we made a journey from one church and one denomination to a different church and denomination, and probably toured almost 20 different churches and congregations along the way, which raised a ton of questions. Walk the Earth is the podcast that raises and reflects my attempts to answer those questions. But the third thing that's been happening lately, particularly since I made a move to extend uh, the podcasts to Spotify, is a formal release of talkback episodes. Talkback episodes simply go back to a point in time before 2017, generally speaking, and shares looks to those oldest shows. Now, they're available on the website at inappropriateconversations.org, but my experience of listening to podcasts while um, extreme, streaming them from a desktop setting, not, not always very positive. It's not that it's a bad experience, but it's just not a particularly mobile experience. And depending on you know, how you use um, you know, podcatchers, they're just easier for consuming shows. So Talkbacks is the other thing. It's a way of sharing older shows. And obviously, even though I didn't originally plan for letting Justice Roll from 2015 to be a talkback episode. Part of it was because of this, the very nature of that sort of live riffing podcast, but also the length of it. I thought, well, I'll skip that one. The other problem I had with it, though, was when I looked back on that episode, even though I think there's some interesting concepts there that I still think are worth reconsidering, it was recorded in 2015. Looking back on current events at the time, mostly from 2014, and my thought was, well, these six-year-old things are just going to seem really dated. I mean, as we get closer and closer to August of 2020, is is it relevant to still be thinking about things that happened in August of 2014, especially to be looking at those things from August of 2014 in a talkback episode where I'm talking about them as, as if they're current? Well, sadly, I would say the purpose of naming this episode, you know, Letting Justice Roll 2, is that these issues are every bit as current now as they were then, and that is a devastating criticism of American society in particular, because it means that in America, nothing has changed in the intervening six years. And for that, I believe we will be held accountable. Now, I'm not without optimism. I never really thought I'd utter this sentence that I'm optimistic about the opportunity to vote for Joe Biden. Those words in my lifetime have never previous to 2020, crossed my lips. But I am somewhat optimistic about that. But the one thing I would offer as advice to a potential president-elect Joe Biden is about the lies and the secrets that the current presidential administration and White House have been telling and what we need to do about that. I would urge the Biden administration to, uh, day one in office, to be honest, is Seek out all of the information that has been withheld, in many cases, I would argue, not legally withheld from the United States Congress and share that information. But I would go a step further. I would not simply share the information in a targeted way with the people who are asking for 
documents and reference information for four years now, I would also do so as publicly as possible. At the same time, non-classified, but relevant you know, to current events and to politics and to investigations in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, to subpoenas from uh, attorneys general, both state and hopefully in the near future federal, I would also share as much of that information as humanly possible, as quickly as possible, in the largest dump of data perhaps in the history of our country with the media. I'm not sure the best way to do that. I think the best way is probably not to play favorites, to simply say uh, any outlet who wants it, uh, AP obviously, Reuters, but simultaneously the Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times, Chicago, sometimes just as many places as possible, peel open the curtains, let the light shine in, and let's have the transparency that, frankly, I can't remember the last time we actually had that the kind of transparency I'm looking for. The Obama administration were not superstars in the area of transparency either, because I think that Biden also should throw open the doors so wide to transparency that when somebody in his administration, whoever that might be, responsibly suggests that there's a classification concern, fine but let's immediately reassess all classification. And I'm not saying that top secret information should be exposed. Not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that I have almost no doubt in my mind that for at least 12 years now, various presidential administrations from multiple political parties have used the concept of top secret classification as a means of hiding things which were not secrets at all, that should not have been classified at all, but they were merely embarrassing. Whether embarrassing to the president or the vice president, or just embarrassing to the attorney general, or a prospective Supreme Court nominee, or the secretary of state. It's time for us to reassess things which have previously been classified, and determine if the classification itself actually made sense in the first place. To this end, I'll make a Recommendation to another past episode of Inappropriate Conversations, one that I'm not sure will be a talkback, but I'll call it out now, because I describe myself, I believe accurately, as a radical moderate. I am not a Democrat. I do not feel that I own either a conservative or a liberal perspective. But when you're a moderate who's not just some sort of wishy-washy, go-with-the-flow centrist, when you have passionate points of view... Those passionate points of view can poke at times both sides of the political spectrum and make you appear to be to the other, whatever that other happens to despise. No, in the past, I've offered this exact same criticism of the abuse of the classification system and the problems that it represents in a basic diatribe against the behavior of then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. I'm even-handed. Here's the episode where that happened. Inappropriate Conversations number 145 was called Transparency and Secrets. Edward Snowden was the different drummer, if you get a sense of what my mood and my focus might have been, in June of 2014. At inappropriateconversations.org, every episode I've ever recorded is still there, still available, and in the right navigation bar is organized into monthly buckets. Find June of 2014, and you'll find Inappropriate Conversations number 144. This, of course, assumes that I don't choose at some point to repost it as a talkback episode. For now, though, my focus on talkbacks is the first letting justice roll, and my focus on the Biden administration is the amount of good that he could immediately do by simply answering the questions of the perjury, 
of the criminal behavior, or at least quite surely seeming criminal behavior of not just the president of the United States currently, but also many people that that particular president has chosen to put into his employ. Because we've had some serious bad results from sort of what I would describe as the mood of the country since the point in time of not just the election in 2016, but even the the candidacy and even the various candidacies coming from people who were trying to run against either Clinton or Sanders during that 2016 political election year. I think I've mentioned before in introductions to past talkback episodes that I don't really have an optimistic feeling about 2020. I felt this way, frankly, before there was any you know, terms being batted around like COVID-19 or coronavirus, my pessimistic feelings about the year came from the fact that there was going to be an election. And although I remain somewhat optimistic about how that election may fare, election years tend to be particularly nasty in the United States of America. And the lead up to election years have, in the past, had a whole lot of very negative headlines, including the kind of headlines that we've seen this year coming out of states like South Carolina and um, in particular, the Minneapolis area of Minnesota. There are really two names on my mind when I'm recording this particular let the Letting Justice Roll episode. One is George Floyd, the other is Breonna Taylor. But again, the sad, sorry fact of the matter is that there could be dozens more names on my mind at the same time, just like there were too many names to mention in January of 2015. Because... We as a country have had a problem for most of the last decade, if not, frankly, longer, maybe even my entire lifetime, maybe even most of the history of our country, if we're we're honest about it, with abusive police. Now, I say this um, from the perspective of somebody who's trying to look magnanimously across all economic classes and all races and all different experiences throughout history. As a white middle-aged man who grew up in the heart of the heart of the country, I really haven't had negative experiences with police of this sort. I've seen police be completely ineffective, but I haven't been I haven't been strangled. Let's put it that way, right? But just because I personally haven't had somebody's hands on my neck or their arm wrapped around me in a chokehold, literally squeezing the life right out of me. Just because I haven't personally had that experience doesn't mean that there's any sense in which I lack the empathy to understand what that experience might feel like. But most of the people who I've interacted with who either don't understand Black Lives Matter or can't understand Colin Kaepernick kneeling, who must be flabbergasted by entire English soccer leagues collectively kneeling, um, the people who don't understand these things, I think, for one thing, they kind of lack empathy. And that lack of empathy is really a serious problem. And the other thing is that they've got the classic, you know, political conservative foil of longing for the good old days. I had an in-law mention the other day online that he really misses the good old days. And and it was in a sort of a Blue Lives Matter pro-police kind of a post he was putting up there. And I chose this time not to have that fight on social media. If this were one of my relatives it was my side of the family and not my wife's side of the family i guarantee i would have i would have gone there with uh, respectful but sharp words to correct some really bad behavior and really poor understanding the fact of the matter is 
I long for the good old days too, but in those good old days, police weren't murdering black people for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or loitering, or you know, selling loose cigarettes on the street, or what have you, right? I think one of the things we don't understand is where that problem of police misbehavior intersects with our sense of empathy. Because even when an elderly white gentleman in Buffalo, New York, is shoved by two police, who then file a false claim on the police report and allege that he tripped, despite the fact that there was video clearly showing what actually happened, these elder members of my extended family can't extend the sympathy to someone who actually does look like them. We have an empathy problem. Let me tell a story. And it may or may not be fictional. We'll start off with the assumption that it's fictional just because I think that makes it more comfortable to tell. But by the time I'm done, this really isn't going to be a fictional story. So you've been warned. You're walking down the sidewalk in a major United States city. And maybe it's a city where there has from time to time been been a problem with stray dogs. And I think, you know, uh, stray and loose animals is actually a problem. I think that as someone who owns a pet, you have a certain responsibility to keep custody of that animal. And to me, custody is a very important term. It assumes that you've got a complete responsibility for the well-being of the person who is in your care, or the animal, in this case, that is in your care. That's why I was so upset about the death in Texas of Sandra Bland a few years ago, because she died while she was in police custody. And, you know, I, I do get suspicious when police do things like disable their cameras, or fail to offer quick and at least hopefully effective medical care to somebody who is in distress. Somebody who has been, you know, for the sake of argument, choked to death. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. But if you're walking down the street and somebody who has lost custody of their animal, this animal is now, let's say it's a golden retriever. And, you know, if it was a golden retriever that looked like it just stepped out of a Westminster dog show, that might be a different thing. But maybe it's a golden retriever who looks like it's been on the street for a little while. You know, it's it's not as perfectly clean as it could be. It's it's um, ownerless, at least uh, for the time being. It doesn't seem to have a home, a homeless dog. And if somebody who was worried, well, is this dog, you know, perhaps carrying rabies or is there some other issue, uh, contacts authorities for help. The authorities who show up are a couple of uh, cars, uh, police cars who just happen to be in the area. Suddenly you have four police officers. And what the police officers choose to do with this stray dog, not being satisfied that they have the identification information that they need. It's not like they can just um, call up a number on the dog's tag or contact the veterinarian for the, the rabies tag hanging on a dog's collar. For the sake of argument, it's a collarless golden retriever. And what the police choose to do instead is hold all four of the dog's legs down and kneel on the neck of the dog with the full weight of an adult male police officer until that dog, um, palpitating, moaning, barking, crying, literally, for help, suffocates and dies. And with no real explanation. I mean, we may find out later that one of the police officers actually had had interactions with this dog before. That maybe he knew the dog, or he knew the dog's owner, and then he and the dog's owner had some sort of a beef with each other over a work thing. Hypothetically speaking, maybe something like that happened. But in this case, uh, he is chosen as the lead police officer on the scene to kneel on the dog's neck until the golden retriever is dead. Now, this is not 
necessarily, at the point of this happening, somebody's property. This is a stray dog, right? No big deal. You know, the dog shouldn't be on the street. Um, but I'm wondering how we as a society would react if police officers were brutalizing animals in this manner. And you can say, well, hey, it's, it's an innocent dog. I don't know. I mean, what if the dog is um, scaring people, snarling, barking, foaming at the mouth, what have you? The care you'd want to bring into a situation with a dog that was potentially rabid would suggest that maybe you shouldn't be putting your legs so close to its mouth that you could actually contact this horrific disease from a potentially diseased animal. So I'm going to guess that the police officer was kneeling on the neck of this golden retriever, quenching the life out of it, making it impossible for it to breathe, um, didn't really worry at the point in time that it was happening about the, the rabies risk being really high. Okay, My guess is that... Just like with movies, where I've seen many people who've watched like uh, horror movies or suspense films who can watch teenagers get slashed in slasher films and not lose really a moment's sleep over it because after all, it is just a movie. But if that same movie has that same slasher carve up a dog, well, that's a bridge too far, right? A nice, friendly, uh, purebred dog like a golden retriever. Bridge too far. What if instead of a golden, it was a black Labrador retriever? Would we feel different if the color of the dog's fur was not golden blonde, but instead jet black? And I'm going to guess that we wouldn't feel any different. Most of the dogs that I've had in my life have been black dogs. To some degree, that's coincidence, but to some degree, not, right? I mean, we, I. My children grew up with a black Cocker Spaniel in the house, so it's not surprising that when they were old enough and we needed, we decided to get a dog to replace one of our dogs who had died, that they chose a black dog, a small black dog, not a Cocker Spaniel again, but a similar breed in terms of size and, you know, frankly, energy and friendliness and all that other sort of stuff, things that, that a kid would be attracted to in terms of, uh, of a pet dog. I don't think that the color of the dog's fur is going to make a difference. But I wonder in America today if the color of the skin of somebody does make a difference if the person who was murdered by the police in a situation like this was human and not animal. If our outrage toward what might happen to a dog is that much higher than our outrage toward what might happen to a, to a man or a woman, then I've got a real problem with that. And I've got a bigger problem, yet even still, layering on top of that if our sense of outrage would be different based on the color of the skin of the person that was murdered by the police. George Floyd was a black man who was murdered in just exactly the way I just described with the dog. And for some people, that's not a deal breaker. For some people, that does not raise questions about whether we are performing law enforcement at an optimal, optimal level in this country that we cannot, in their minds, necessarily do better, or doing better is so risky that it's not worth it to try. My attitude is, and always has been, not only that we can do better, we must do better, because what we're experiencing today is unacceptable and absolutely worth protesting over. Now, when you protest, an interesting thing happens, and this has been true my entire lifetime, or at least the parts of my lifetime that I'm aware of. I'm willing to grant that maybe in 1965-66, the FBI was not behaving this way as overtly as they did from, say, 1966 on. 
But it's not at all unusual for the uh, FBI and other law enforcement officials to infiltrate groups that are representing minority voices and try to do things to get those groups to break laws so that the group itself can be discredited and the people can be arrested where the actual criminal element within the group is actually law enforcement posing and pretending, trying to radicalize groups that may not otherwise be radical to justify a crackdown against those groups. Uh, As I'm recording today, there has been news, finally, and this is news going all the way back to the immediate aftermath of May 25th of this year. So we're almost in August, and it's taken this long for law enforcement in Minneapolis, or maybe law enforcement elsewhere helping Minneapolis, identify the person who's become known online as the Umbrella Man. There were protests almost immediately after the murder of George Floyd by the four Minneapolis police officers, and part of the reason the protests happened so immediately was because it did not appear at first as if the you know, the district attorneys, for want of a better word, in Minnesota were willing to press charges against the police. There was not an immediate move to press charges, despite the obvious evidence. And when the charges were levied, the charges were extremely, and in my opinion, unjustifiably light, if nothing else. Things we've learned since about past encounters from the police officer Chauvin and Mr. Floyd in an employment setting suggest that it's beyond the realm of possibility that Chauvin could seriously suggest he had no idea who George Floyd was, which therefore introduces more of a first-degree murder question to be answered instead of the very light charges that were initially leveled against those police. You could understand why people in anger would go into the streets and protest and demand justice. And you also could imagine why someone who was part of a white supremacist movement, someone who had no respect whatsoever for black lives, someone who would probably say, if you were able to record candid conversation, that to him it's obvious that black lives do not matter. Why that person would desperately want to turn a thoughtful and um, organized protest, creating a conversation around issues which very well could lead to actual changes, still might yet lead to actual changes in the police department of the Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota area, why that person would want to turn it into something less um, calm and dialectical and more into a uh, riot of some sort. Looking more for the uh, aftermath of the Rodney King verdict and less for a uh, Martin Luther King kind of a scenario, wanting to be on the other side of that bridge in Alabama, not the side we see in images of peaceful marching, in other words. And if he couldn't trust whoever this umbrella man is, the protest to turn violent on their own, if he couldn't trust looting to spontaneously, you know, break out, then his solution was to disguise himself all in black, carrying an umbrella for whatever reason, and a hammer, and smashing windows and perhaps even painting graffiti on stores in the section of town where the protests were going on in hopes that that would somehow trigger some sort of backlash, either by the police or opportunistic uh, misbehavior that could be, you know, turned into looting. In other words, trying to turn something peaceful into something not peaceful. And luckily, in 2020, we seem to have better video than we did in 2014. Not that there was no video in 2014. We have 
Walmart security video of John Crawford being killed by uh, police acting as if they were a SWAT team um, because the man was committing the crime of buying a toy gun. We have some video, but we have much better video in this case of the actual Black Lives Matter protesters confronting this individual, trying to get him to identify himself and essentially herding him away to stop his behavior. And they basically herd him all the way toward his car. And that, to me, is the real key statistic here. This man drove to the part of town where he did the vandalism, the damage, and started everything that turned into all the negative aspects of the protests that erupted in Minneapolis in the aftermath of, the George, of George Floyd's murder. Therefore, it's reasonable to assume that there should be enough just incidental camera footage that this car's license plate should be identified. I mean, if this man, instead of busting up windows at places like AutoZone and trying to start a riot, if he instead fired successfully or otherwise an attempted assassination bullet at the president of the United States or a vice president or even a senator in the home state of Minnesota, you would think that if a crime like that was committed, that the full force of law enforcement in Minneapolis and perhaps even nationally could have identified this vehicle long before now. Make and model, because it could have at least isolated it to a few thousand cars in the country and then whatever data is available to try to isolate that into the ones that might have been in Minneapolis. My suggestion is that in the two plus months that have gone by since this man's crimes were committed and the we're here all the time on conservative media about the unbelievable damage caused by those riots, you'd think this guy would be public enemy number one instead of somebody that at least from appearances on the outside looking in, the Minneapolis police or at least the police union in Minneapolis looking to protect and defend more interested in shielding this guy, trying to divert the attention elsewhere. And it appears, maybe, hopefully, the time is finally beginning to catch up to Umbrella Man. But the difference is, this guy started something which led to millions of dollars in property damage and other, perhaps exaggerated, perhaps not exaggerated, damages. And the police were at best casual about whether catching him was even a good idea, as opposed to an unproven allegation of a $20 bill that was counterfeit, with no allegation that George Floyd created the counterfeit, that he wasn't the counterfeiter. If anything, he was a victim previously of somebody passing him a bad bill. Just the suspicion of the fact that he might have been involved in the temporary ownership of a counterfeit $20 bill was enough justification in the minds of not just one, but four law enforcement officers to strangle the man to death by kneeling on his neck and preventing him from doing anything to catch air by making sure that they had completely subdued the rest of his body with the full weight of at least one and probably four police officers for an amount of time that is originally was judged to be more than eight minutes and now has been judged to be more than nine minutes. And I have issues. My issues include the fact that whether we decide this span of time was 8 minutes and 46 seconds or almost 10 minutes, George Floyd was dead well in to the duration of that time. Meaning that in addition to murder charges and aiding aiding and abetting charges for some of the officers who were on the scene, you also have to be a little bit concerned about whether or not there should be additional charges about, I don't have the right words in my head for this, but somewhere along the lines of, of, molesting a corpse 
at some point, you are continuing to do intentional damage to somebody you know is dead. And there's got to be additional crimes related to what would happen. I mean, if you show up in a nursing home and strangle or otherwise, you know, uh, kick or harm a cadaver that's in there in a nursing home for the purpose of preparing a family for a burial, that's a crime. You are not allowed to molest a corpse. And as far as I'm concerned, there's four police officers in Minneapolis, Minnesota right now who, no matter what else happens to them in the courts of law, is getting away scot-free with molesting a corpse, and not just for a little while, for more than two minutes. Kind of begs the question of, how long is a minute? A year ago, give or take, probably in the introduction to a talkback episode, as a matter of fact, I was talking about how we as Americans, and maybe this is a worldwide phenomenon, struggle to understand the absolute enormity of what one billion is. And that if you were asked to actually count it, um, a million is a big enough chore, a billion is, well, damn near impossible. One billion is damn near impossible. If you were counting at one dollar at a time, at a rate of approximately one second at a time, and you did give yourself time to use the restroom, eat some meals, take a shower every now and then, it would take you decades of your life, not just years, to accomplish that. So on one level, this big, enormous number, and it's even worse when you start talking about trillions, kind of beyond the ability of people to comprehend just how big it is. But you know what? Even something that seems as small as a minute or two, we've all had that experience where time just stands still. And I guarantee you, time probably flashes in a way that's absolutely frightening and mortifying and also simultaneously stands completely still if you're being strangled to death by four police officers on the streets of your city without probably even a full comprehension of what it is you've allegedly done. Police are not judge, jury, and executioner. They are zero of the three. And I sometimes think that far too many of us lose sight of that. When a job is being done so poorly, it is to me reasonable for there to be charges pressed against the people who, in doing their job so poorly, break the law or kill people. And my issue with Breonna Taylor in Louisville is multifaceted, but there's a level of incompetence here that seems to be a little bit frightening. They went in on a no-knock warrant on a drug case. You've got the whole war on drugs problem there, too. To arrest somebody who not only wasn't there because they had the wrong house, the person was already in police custody and the police didn't know it. Now, that's interesting. But the other things that are interesting to me about what happened with Breonna Taylor, and there are many, was police cameras, body cameras on police officers were shut off going into that apartment, presumably to do a perfectly legal arrest. To me, it's about time in this country that among the reforms we consider, that a police officer turning off or otherwise obscuring his body camera in an intentional or negligent manner is a sign of intent and perhaps should actually be on its own a crime. Just flat out criminal malpractice, doing your job intentionally poorly. That whole notion of a traffic stop where the police officer raises the hood of his car so that the hood of the police car obscures the dashboard camera that should be filming what happens in that particular arrest and confrontation where theoretically 
that dashboard camera in the police car is there to protect the police and create a record that will exonerate the police of false accusation as much as it is to protect the person's rights who's been pulled over by an authority figure. But my notion is, if you ever see that situation where a police officer appears to be doing um, his duty, but is doing his duty while having obscured the dashboard camera in his vehicle, the hood being up on a car by the side of the road is the international signal for I need help. It's an international signal for my car is broken down and I've got a mechanical problem. And I believe if I ever saw that or the next time I do see that, I'm, I'm going to be really tempted to call 911 and report an officer needs assistance claim for the intersection where I, I witnessed this happening because I don't have a good explanation for why the hood would be up in that situation. And I want to hold police in unconditional positive regard and assume that the police officer is not about to commit some sort of criminal negligence and he's trying to hide his activity from the camera. But when you're going in to make an arrest, locked and loaded, cock the hammer, guns blazing, and you switch off your camera on the way in, it raises serious questions about the potential for criminal intent. It also means that when you find yourself in a shootout, because the person who lives there has a my home is my castle mentality, and he has a weapon, and when people break into his home, when his girlfriend is in bed with him, he's going to defend her. Well, it didn't work out that way. The gunfire that exchanged between an innocent man and his innocent girlfriend, cases of mistaken identity due to a relative degree of police incompetence, again, trying to serve a warrant to arrest somebody who was already in custody, strikes me as a level of incompetence. And in that resulting shootout, Breonna Taylor dies. How long does it take before the police who shot Breonna Taylor and arrested her boyfriend for attempted murder because he defended his castle, whether it's an apartment or a home, doesn't matter, he defended his castle by shooting armed intruders who did not identify themselves immediately as police. The focus was arresting him for the audacity to defend himself against a police home invasion, and no immediate medical care was provided toward Breonna Taylor. There have since been police sympathetic people in the dispatcher and medical community who said, you know what, based on the number of gunshots she received, it's unlikely that she could have survived even if there was immediate medical treatment provided, even if there was pressure put on open wounds and tourniquets and mouth-to-mouth if necessary. If all those things were done, she probably would have died anyway. That doesn't make it better. That doesn't make this anything more than an unwitting, but but also culpable assassination. These are people who were in their home, asleep in the middle of the night, um, with no reason to suspect that the people barging into their door with guns are police officers. And those police officers must have had something else going on in their minds to make sure that a lot of what that was going on in that apartment wasn't filmed, because despite the fact that they had body cameras, they didn't have those body cameras on. They also filed another one example, like the Buffalo, New York example, of a not exactly 100% scrupulously accurate police account. If I call the police right now and make a false statement to them about what's happening... Maybe if I'm a white woman in New York City, I can get away with that for weeks and weeks without actually facing criminal charges. But my guess is there would be criminal charges. When a common citizen makes a false claim to the police, there are and should be consequences. When the police make a false claim, there also should be consequences. And in many ways, maybe those consequences should be more severe. Because, as I recalled in telling uh, Inappropriate Conversations number 113, uh, a recent talkback, 
raised on robbery. So it's available on feeds like Spotify here just in the last six months or so. The the raised on robbery story I tell was how impossible it was for me, having had a gun pointed to my head, to recall in the detail that I had wanted to recall or intended to recall about the events that happened. And it wasn't that I was making a false claim to the police. My claim was just completely incomplete because I found the experience traumatic enough that I blacked out about a lot of details. That's how a common citizen responds. But the police officers are in charge of the situation. And if you have a situation where things go really badly and an arrest you're trying to execute, and you then, you know, fudge a little bit on the report, well, that's a big deal. You're a law enforcement officer committing something more on the level of perjury than simply being confused or trying to cover up an embarrassing detail about your personal life. No, this is your work life, and your work life is law enforcement. And lying in the execution of law enforcement duties is a crime, therefore embellishing or falsifying a police report is a crime. But we don't seem to have the guts to hold police accountable for anything. And that's the problem. Because Brianna Taylor did nothing wrong. Police stormed into her house, shot her, killed her. Killed her in a gunfight that was of the police's own making. Executing a warrant that didn't need to be executed in the first place. And failing to provide medical care for her when the opportunity was there. I'll go back to it. Miracles happen every day. But miracles don't happen if you don't provide medical care. So even if they waited one minute instead of five... That one minute, I got a problem with that. There is a depraved indifference to the human life of Breonna Taylor and her boyfriend, represented by both the uh, incompetence of the execution of the warrant itself and the criminal intent of turning off the body cameras. This is a big deal. It took intense public pressure over multiple weeks for the people um, who tracked down a black jogger in a quote-unquote white neighborhood in South Carolina and killed him to be arrested. It took multiple days for the Minneapolis police, who strangled George Floyd like a dog in the street, to be arrested and charged with anything at all. And it took even more days, including a change in who was running the criminal prosecution in that case, to get those charges to make any sense whatsoever. And in Louisville, Kentucky, we're still waiting for any sort of justice whatsoever. In the intervening protest that happened in Louisville, I saw a video clip of an incident where somebody was in the second floor of what I'm assuming is an office building where um, what looked like downtown protests were happening and something went wrong. I'm not judging why the police chose to violently apprehend somebody who had been protesting. The person might have actually done something really heinous while also being a protester. But when the police officers who were there noticed that they were being filmed from an office building nearby, one of the police officers withdrew his weapon and fired a bullet into the glass of that office building in the direction of the person who was doing the filming. And to my knowledge, there have been no consequences. Now, I'd be delighted to find out that the police officer who discharged his weapon in that situation and in that manner was fired from his job for the recklessness that he displayed and that criminal charges, attempted murder charges, were pressed against this police officer. I'm just mystified that if that actually did happen, it hadn't made the news. So I'm going to go for now with the assumption that this didn't happen at all. And I don't think that very many of us who've been focused on the underlying issues behind Black Lives Matter for 
the better part of a decade now, are at all surprised by the fact that there probably won't be any real consequences for the Buffalo police who shoved the elderly man and cracked his skull open, or for the other police who more or less threatened to walk out on their job if there were going to be consequences to these two officers, that there's no consequences that I'm aware of to the police officer in Louisville who fired a gun into a into an office building because he didn't like being filmed. And it would just be par for the course. The level of, aggregate, of aggravation is staggering. Because when we're talking about the one minute or five minutes it took for someone to actually ask the question in the scene in Louisville of whether Breonna Taylor needed medical assistance one way or the other is still a shorter duration of time than was involved in the police in Minneapolis both murdering George Floyd and molesting his corpse. Again, I still don't have the perfect phrase for what that is, but it was certainly, well, you can't murder somebody who's already dead. So if you are still crushing the neck uh, of somebody who has died several minutes ago, what do you call that, right? It gets back to this notion of a duration of time. So what I want to do at the end of this show, because I haven't gotten to the different drummer yet, but at the end of the show, what I want to do is between the uh, ending fade out of the Inappropriate Conversations theme music and the Pride 48 stinger at the end, I'm going to intentionally leave 8 minutes and 46 seconds of open, dead air. I realize that that actually isn't perfectly accurate, and because I'm recording this in late July instead of recording it in early June, I know this now. I know that the time duration should actually be longer than that, but because of our different drummer, I'm going to pick precisely 8 minutes and 46 seconds for a reason, because... Not that I'm recommending that anyone should hang around from the fade out of a theme music all the way to a, to a quick, short promotional tag at the end of this MP3 file. But if you chose to do it, it would give you a sense of exactly how long 8 minutes and 46 seconds really and truly is. It's hard to even really put yourself in the position of imagining what it would be like to not be able to breathe for that duration of time. I don't recommend it. Don't try this at home. You won't survive it. Or you'll fail the test because at some point your brain is going to take over and force you to breathe against your will. Which is exactly the opposite of being forced not to breathe against your will. There are people out there, I won't name their names, I'll let the different drummer um, have the last word on some of them, who've been quick to point out that, well, you know, George Floyd wasn't Jesus Christ, he wasn't an exemplary perfect, perfect human being, he didn't lead, lead the perfect life, and therefore, what, it's okay that police murdered him? Again, law enforcement covers a variety of things in the broad realm of law enforcement. There are things which are a piece of the action there, like judge and jury, and even, in some states, executioner. Police officers are none of those things. Police officers do not get to decide that punching a police officer because you're angry at him is justification for gunning him down in the street and leaving his body there for four or five hours unattended. It, it doesn't justify that. And certainly something like, you know, being in possession, maybe, of a $20 bill that that might be counterfeit, maybe, well, that isn't a death penalty offense either. And we keep issuing death penalty offenses for people and using excuses like, well, you know what, he was probably on drugs. I don't care if he was on drugs. We need to create, and this is just 
rehashing a little bit some of the conversation points and letting justice roll one. But we need to create a situation where we have better methods of intervening. We have better ways of protecting and serving. Our toolkit has more in it than just guns and gizmos. And until we figure out how to do that, responsibility for what happened in Minneapolis, responsibility for what happened in Louisville, responsibility for what happened years earlier in Dayton, Ohio, and in suburban St. Louis, Missouri, that's on us too. We have had the better part of six years to address and resolve the issues. And here we are once again in the same spot that we were in before. My take on Ferguson, Missouri, spoilers, is that law enforcement in that particular part of Missouri was hell-bent on creating a riot. When you have prayerful, peaceful protests in the streets being led by clergy of multiple denominations who aren't even yelling and screaming, not even yet at that point in their experience carrying signs. It was more or less a prayer vigil for justice to understand even what happened that night. Because as we recall in the Michael Brown case, one of the bigger issues was that uh, the victim's bill of rights concept or not, the family wasn't being fully informed about what even happened that night. But when you fire tear gas rubber bullets into that situation, you certainly can create situations where people who are otherwise um, sitting and praying are now running around like crazy, and you can catch it just right on film and make it look like it's a riot. The actual riots and property damages happened days later, after multiple days of provocation by law enforcement going all the way up to the district attorney who presumably was trying to seek justice in that situation. That's 2014. Make me an argument that we're in better shape now. Look at what's happening in Portland, Oregon alone, with secret police, unmarked, unidentified, not even identified by department they represent, uh, kidnapping protesters off the street with no probable cause of crime and taking them to God knows where. I mean, we're not better now. In many ways, the situation has gotten worse. So it's probably worth it for us to contemplate what 8 minutes and 46 seconds feels like. Because to me, the weight of this particular duration of of 8 minutes, 46 seconds, is a lot bigger than the weight of what I might call normal time. And of all the people I've heard speak to this this year, there's lots who've done a really great job. One of them is our different drummer, Dave Chappelle. I don't think it's necessary to introduce Dave Chappelle to any sort of audience of podcast listeners. Uh, He is in every way a famous person. But I want to do what I typically do for different drummers and provide some introductory information using Wikipedia. And then I'm going to make what I consider to be a very surprising admission. But first, Dave Chappelle is an American stand-up comedian, actor, writer, and producer. He's the recipient of numerous accolades, including two Emmy Awards, three Grammy Awards, as well as a Mark Twain Prize. He is known for his satirical comedy sketch series, Chappelle's Show, which aired from 2003 to 2006. The series, co-written with Neil Brennan, ran until Chappelle quit the show in the middle of the third season. After the show, Chappelle returned to performing stand-up comedy across the United States. By 2006, he was being called a comedy genius of America by Esquire magazine, 
Rolling Stone has ranked him number nine in their list of the 50 best stand-up comics of all time. Here's the stunning admission. I have never seen end-to-end a complete episode of The Chappelle Show. I'm not even 100% sure I've seen an entire segment end-to-end. And to some degree, this is a little bit surprising. My pain threshold for satirical sketch comedy is quite high. I was willing to put up, in bits and, and bobs, the, the bad years of Saturday Night Live. I believe Saturday Night Live has found a political edge in the last, say, 10 years and gotten a lot better than it was, from my opinion, in the decade or two before that. But that format kind of works for me, so it's a little bit interesting that maybe Chappelle's show didn't read right with me, for one reason or another. I have an explanation, which I'll offer in a minute. But the other thing is, from somebody who really enjoys music, and Chappelle really enjoys music, and the guests that he had on his show at the time were either extremely well-known and inherently interesting, or cutting-edge and inherently interesting, there are a lot of reasons why I could have and should have tapped into The Chappelle Show. It's not like I didn't have Comedy Central as a channel all those years ago. I had access to Chappelle's show. The reason that I'll offer for it is that in that period from 2003 to 2006, I had kids who were just beginning to be teenagers and just hovering around maybe the 10-year-old kind of phase. And they were, as young people that I was responsible for, they were skewing a little bit too young for his audience. And therefore, while my threshold for that kind of comedy is very high, my wife's threshold was appropriately low if she was speaking and thinking and representing in terms of our kids being in the room or our kids being able to see whatever I might have recorded. Back then, hard to say. I think that might have been pre-DVR for me or maybe um, just the beginning of the DVR era. So for me, I, to have watched the show, I would have had to probably set some sort of intentional timer to record VHS or possibly DVD, something along those lines. It just didn't happen. So for all those years, uh, the comedy of Dave Chappelle went in one direction, and I followed more, more or less a parallel path. And there are elements of Chappelle's comedy that are you know, definitely not to my liking. I want to believe that he would probably take a lot of pride in that, and if I do my job right here, I will end the Different Drummer segment with that explanation. But the main reason I'm citing him here on this particular topic is because of one particular YouTube video. It's not that I haven't seen almost everything the man's done on Netflix in the last, say, two and a half months. Now, uh, sort of a semi-self-quarantine dynamic will do that. You have more time to watch comedy than you did before. And I've done just exactly that. But what originally attracted me to it was that a friend of my wife's um, had a relative who was going to see when uh, the Chappelle's performance of what has turned into the YouTube video, 8 minutes, 46 seconds. I found 8 minutes, 46 seconds on a channel on YouTube called Netflix is a joke. And um, from there, you know, it's 27 minutes and 20 seconds. It's really probably more like, call it 25 minutes of really solid extemporaneous discussion about this particular issue. He doesn't call it 8 minutes and 46 seconds by mistake, and not to steal his thunder, but opening the show with a description of what he felt like experiencing an earthquake for the very first time while living in the greater Los Angeles area, and thinking for something along the lines of 25 or 35 seconds that he might just die that day. He then, later on, compares that to what it must feel like if instead of a duration of 25 to 35 seconds, you're talking about 8 minutes 
and 46 seconds. Chappelle does a good job in this particular YouTube special, is what I'll call it, of not only um, explaining how he dealt emotionally with the videos and the other information coming out surrounding the murder of George Floyd by police officers, but he also, um, in his own way, kind of recognized that this is not the time and place for you know uh, celebrities, thought leaders, opinion leaders, prominent comedians, uh, musicians to be out in front leading the charge. He was very quick to say, you know what, the streets are taking care of themselves. And if nothing else, he's happy to sit back and applaud their efforts. Certainly, I imagine that he's with me in terms of not being at all happy that some of those people who are doing the righteous work of First Amendment protesting and representing are having the rest of their Bill of Rights violated by the overreach of law enforcement at the federal level in this country. No. Left to their own, I believe that the streets would be just fine. But there are people like the Umbrella Man, white supremacist as he's alleged to be, who would prefer that an open intellectual dialogue not happen because people who believe as he believes do not survive well if actually called upon to calmly and intelligently debate somebody like Dave Chappelle or the people that he's happily handed the microphone to instead on the streets of cities all over this country speaking intently and eloquently about the fact that the time has come. In fact, it is long overdue to say we can do police work better. And if our police are not capable of behaving properly in situations like crowd management at a protest in Buffalo, New York, or you know somebody who's alleged to have passed a counterfeit bill to a small you know grocery convenience store in Minneapolis, Minnesota... If police can't handle that, then we need to figure out a way if we hand those, some of those responsibilities to people who can handle it so that we equip the police appropriately with the right tools in the toolkit to do the job so much better that they don't have to be on the defensive about whether or not they're being treated unfairly because back in the good old days, cops were respected. Well, you know what? Back in the good old days, cops weren't murdering people like their dogs in the street. And back in the good old days, people were not reacting more casually and indifferently to the murder of a black man on the street than they ever would if the police officer was performing that same kind of that act of violence against a dog or a cat. So, there's your problem. took me a long time to record this. I intended to hit it pretty early in the month of July, and instead a few things got in the way, and I got to it later in the month of July, but one of the things that I think has been rough is trying to find the right tone. The other reason that I'm naming Dave Chappelle as a different drummer is not just, hey, you made a kick-ass YouTube clip, you should go look at it. No, even in the parts of his comedy that I find to be a little bit more uncomfortable, let's say. Chappelle's done a good job of calling out the fact that it's a bit of a problem trying to have vibrant, intelligent dialogue in our society today when everyone has, to use his expression, become so brittle. No one has any flexibility. The slightest bit of of request for someone to bend, to entertain a different idea, 
as Aristotle might suggest, that it's a sign of an intelligent person, that they can entertain an idea without necessarily having to adopt it. When asking people to bend just that much, oh, we just break, we just snap, we're offended by everything. We're more than willing to engage in acts of quiet violence against other people for having ideas we don't agree with, as opposed to fleshing those ideas out, putting them on display, and letting, letting intelligent observers reject them. I don't know Chappelle personally, and I have already admitted that I've not done a very good job of engaging in his back catalog. But I sometimes wonder on some of the more um, offensive or, uh, or caustic things that he has to say, if Chappelle isn't actually just intentionally putting up a controversial idea, forcing people to wrestle with their own prejudices and biases, and perhaps reject their own ideas at the same time that in a knee-jerk reaction they're rejecting Chappelle's ideas. It would be pretty good work from a comedy perspective if you were telling jokes in a way that forced people to assess whether their no reaction at what you say about the trans community shouldn't ask them to face their own biases against the trans community and maybe manage the cognitive dissonance by rejecting their own prejudice at the same time that they lash out against yours. The challenge there is, can you as a comedian survive the backlash because we as a society have become too brittle. In 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. I spent most of the show talking about an absolute inexcusable breakdown in the quality of our policing in America today. But that's not the only kind of policing I want to complain about. And I'll hit the other kind. In league with this concept that Chappelle has been putting out there in recent stand-ups about how problematic it is that we're so easily offended by everything, on the other side... Long episode this time, but not as long as letting justice roll one. So I'll take that as uh, signs of a relatively good edit. Even though for this one, I think I'm going to make relatively few changes. Slap in a promo, some different drummer music, header footer, call it good. I guess it's just the way letting justice rolls got to roll down like a mighty stream out of my mouth because I can't edit myself, I suppose. Which gets me to the other kind of policing that I find to be a real problem right now, and that's tone policing. I am sick and tired of having to manage whether I'm using words that might offend grandma and grandpa. I'm not even talking about profanity. I'm talking about calling out to them that in their lifetime, they sat silently on their hands and allowed Jim Crow laws to fester in the parts of the country that I lived in, in the decades before I grew up there, and said and did nothing and how dare them tell people right now that you're protesting the wrong way or that your tone of voice is too angry or you should be more deferential to authorities. How dare them? Their deference to authorities in the years before I was born is a major problem and a contributing factor to everything we're experiencing right now. Their uh, ignorance 
or their quote-unquote tolerance of things like Jim Crow laws have a through line that you can trace all the way back to the beginning of slavery in this pre-United States land we live in and all the way forward to the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. They have accountabilities for which they have not been called to task. And you can understand, perhaps now, why I've been on the receiving end of a fairly high dose of tone policing. I just can't be heard by people who live in the good old boy states of Texas and Oklahoma and Colorado if I'm speaking with this tone of voice. If I suggest that maybe the people who were, you know, my mom's relatives, that her elders should, you know, maybe now's the time for you to sit down and be quiet. Maybe now's the time for you to sit down and shut up. I've been in lengthy Facebook conversations just this year on these issues of what happened to George Floyd and what happened in the aftermath of George Floyd. And the entire conversation was not based on police behavior at all or the life and death of George Floyd at all. It was based on whether or not the use of the term shut up is appropriate in any way whatsoever. And long before we're going to get around to asking law enforcement officers in places like Louisville and Buffalo and Minneapolis to apologize for their criminal behavior... First, the highest priority is me apologizing because I said shut up would maybe it would have been more appropriate if I said be quiet or maybe even be quiet would be a problem because Greg, those are your elders. I wonder how some of the people that I'm related to directly or indirectly can actually they must throw up violently every time they see the movie 12 Angry Men. I'm just tempted to suggest that if I happen to be visiting with relatives. We were, you know, we went on a vacation together. We're staying in one of those kind of group home condo Airbnb situations. And it's really a rainy, nasty day. So instead of doing something in the great outdoors, we're stuck inside watching old movies. And the old movie we turn on is 12 Angry Men because, you know, there's a scene in 12 Angry Men where two of the people who were consistently voting to convict all the way through end up having a discussion or difference of opinion with each other where the younger of the two men tells the elder, you know what? I heard you loud and clear and you need to be quiet now. You need to sit down and you need to be quiet. I don't want to hear from you the rest of this deliberation. Right now, my guess is that I am related to people who would tone police the holy hell out of that guy because this young man shouldn't be talking to an older man like that, even though the older man was expressing openly virulent racist views. I'm wondering, actually, if the conversation wouldn't turn to whether his views were actually racist or whether he was just engaging in some sort of a mild form of stereotyping. I mean, we are capable of painting with the finest brushes in the most delicate, lacy designs to try to get away from actually having hard conversations with each other because the second the hard conversation starts, I can almost guarantee you, your tone is going to be policed. And it's every bit as much an abuse of the concept of policing as what we're seeing from you know, government thugs on the streets of Portland dragging people off the street, assaulting mothers who have the audacity to simply stand in their way and prevent them from kidnapping the next protester that they've targeted. It's a bit of an outrage that we're so brittle, that we're so worried about, well, we don't want to upset Grandpa. You know what? Grandpa has the option to tune out this conversation. And the point that I was making in the post that caused so much, you know, intra-family controversy is 
Grandpa spent decades tuning out the entire Jim Crow situation in this country. He can tune this one out, too, if he doesn't like the way the argument's going. It's high time that an argument about race like this was one that the grandpas of our country either lost or simply forfeited by refusing to participate. And instead of having the hard conversation, we're more interested in not hurting people's feelings. The same people who are not, who are not interested in me taking the risk of putting a difficult concept out there and hurting someone's feelings doesn't seem to care at all about the feelings of George Floyd, his friends and family, Breonna Taylor, her boyfriend, and her friends and family, and countless others. It is not like we had a bad year in the heat of the summer of 2014, and suddenly, inexplicably, we're having problems again in 2020. This predates 2014 by a mile, and it hasn't stopped in the intervening years. And the fact that we haven't come up with a way of doing something about it, that is the thing we ought to be apologizing for. As always, for feedback, opinions, points and questions, as I like to call them, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. The uh, podcast has a page on Facebook for inappropriate conversations listed as a cause. There's also one for Walk the Earth on Facebook. Both I interact together with on Twitter. I'm at IC underscore Greg there. I'm also IC underscore Greg on SoundCloud, where I, from time to time, will post clips of past shows to give people an audio hint of what the content is for every Inappropriate Conversation podcast and Walk the Earth starting at the very beginning. I went all the way back to 2010. I've been working my way forward and, uh, SoundCloud is the way I sort of share those uh, hints or tips of past shows. In the meantime, thanks for listening.
This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.